Hello, welcome to the second episode of Chattering with ISFM. This month we have the first of our two episodes on feline infectious peritonitis. In June, ISFM's own Sam Taylor sat down at our Congress in Rhodes with Professors Danielle Gunmore and Severine Tasker to discuss the latest developments in the diagnosis and treatment of FIP. We hope you enjoy part one of their discussion. Just with a little bit of background for those of you listening from around the world, the reason we're doing this is that for about a year now in the UK and longer in Australia, we've had availability of antiviral drugs that have proved and are proving to be very effective at even curing FIP. And so I'm going to go to Danielle and just ask you, for people watching, can you just remind us the current thoughts on how coronavirus causes FIP? Well, it's not nailed down yet, but our understanding is you've got the enteric corona, feline coronavirus. It's in most cat bowels. Most cats are positive, particularly if they're in uh, large multi-cat households. And those viruses live there quite happily, living, no problem. But they mutate. These viruses are are big viruses, and every single mutation, the daughter is slightly different to the mother. And every now and again, the viruses will jump out of the bowel into the blood supply, and they go in particularly monocytes, macrophages. And that's kind of step number one. And they're going to start replicating. And it's a fight then between the cat's immune system, i.e. the macrophage, to stop the virus replicating, and the virus desperately trying to replicate. And you build up these clouds, quasi-species clouds, of viruses that are very similar, but some of them are more pathogenic than others. And so you get more mutations that allow the virus to replicate even more, and then eventually can take a step, and they can now trigger FIP. That's a very shortened version. It's a good version. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And coming to you, Sarah, I mean, one of the things that we get a lot of questions about on our, we've run an email advice uh, service for, for FIP. And one of the things we get asked about a lot is diagnosis, mm-hmm. because it's something that can be really, really confusing. For our general practitioners, who are often times and perhaps funds limited, what do you advise as a sort of approach to, to making yeah. that diagnosis? Yeah, it's a re- really good question. So I think it's worth thinking about, first of all, that actually our approach now that we've got a treatment available makes it a little bit different because previously it was about being absolutely sure that we had the diagnosis before often having to sadly put the cat to sleep, whereas now we're really aiming for being as confident as that being a likely diagnosis as possible in order to then think about uh, treatment if the client can afford it. Because we have to bear in mind that the antivirals, we're so lucky to have them, but they are expensive. And we also therefore don't want to be spending a huge amount of money diagnostically and then not having any funds available for treatment. So it sort of alters the dynamics of of what we want to do diagnostically um, a little bit different. So I think we should be aiming to be as confident as possible, even if we don't nail the diagnosis. In terms of more specific diagnostics, if you can't go through them all uh, just now, but I think really, really try and find fluid. You know, if you can find a slither of fluid 
in that cat and get a sample of that fluid, that really gives you something that diagnostically is really, really useful from the point of view of cytology on that fluid, the protein levels in that fluid, and then also if funds allow a PCR on that fluid as well. And as you said, you, you've, well, both of you have mentioned PCR, and that can be perhaps for practitioners a little bit of a minefield because mm-hmm. we've got it's a, what I call a yes/no PCR. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got a quantitative, PCR and then we've got a mutation yeah. PCR. Could you just yeah. explain? Explain yeah, what the yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, we talk about PCR. It is RT PCR because coronavirus is an RNA virus, so we have to do reverse transcriptase PCR. But we'll just say PCR for today. So PCR is basically looking for the the RNA in the coronavirus that's in the cat. And what we've got to remember is there's different types of PCR out there. So the older type PCR, what we sometimes call conventional PCR, is doing that PCR and then running the sample on a gel and then looking, is it there? Yes. Is it not there? No. Is there a band there? Yes. Is there no band? No. And so it was a yes, no answer to is there coronavirus there, which, you know, is helpful in certain situations when you want to know whether something is there or not. Quantitative PCR goes up another stage because it's not only telling you yes, no, but it's saying yes, there's a small amount, a medium amount, or there's a lot of it about depending on what PCR assay is being used by the lab and what controls that they, they've done previously. So quantitative PCR for me is what I find most useful because I'm really sort of finding we know from the pathogenesis that normal non-FIP cats can have some coronavirus systemically. It's not that common, but they can have that. But they have lower levels than cats with FIP. So that quantitative PCR, if you can get a sample from an area where there is likely pathology that's consistent with, with FIP and you've got a lot of coronavirus in there, that really makes me a lot more confident that I'm dealing with FIP. And just coming to you, Danielle, I suppose being slightly controversial, there's a few tests that maybe we don't like as much. <laughs> you know my feelings on serology. What are your feelings on serology? Because we know that our colleagues are doing yes, you know, they're still know. doing it. So I can remember Professor Niels Peterson saying when I was still a baby vet that more cats had died from having a positive corona antibody test than ever had FIP. And I think that is even more correct now. And so it's really important if there's one take home message, please, just because they're antibody positive, that doesn't mean anything. It means they've met coronavirus. Whoopee! They're ubiquitous, they're everywhere. So just because they're positive, it doesn't mean anything. And then people go, but, but it's a really high level. So that means that something important, doesn't it? No, some of the highest ones I've seen were completely normal. There's a litter of Siamese kittens and they were all through the ceiling. And in wet FIP, they can even have a zero antibody because it's all caught up in the immune complexes. And just before we move on to to treatment, my last question, I'll I'll come back to Danielle again. Fecal PCRs for coronavirus. Now they're on a lot of panels and I know we're talking about FIP today and I'm sort of veering off a little bit but while we're talking about PCRs for coronavirus what are the circumstances that you would perform a, a, a coronavirus PCR on a, on a it, it's another it's it's actually really important because I'm seeing more and more you know with the advice ones coming through that oh 
but it's fecal PCR positive. So that means he's got FIP. No, it means he's got coronavirus in his poop. And that the, the, the virions, the viruses that are living in his bowel, they haven't mutated to live in his blood. It's the blood ones that we have to be worried about. So in fact, I'm not even going to contemplate looking at a fecal PCR for a, an FIP case. I, I, I'm going to keep it for the really the nasty chronic diarrheas where I'm, I've run out of every other differential and I'm thinking, okay, maybe could this actually be one of those rare cases that is actually a coronavirus-induced diarrhea? And that's where I would be using that PCR. Yeah. Or if I'm trying to clear a cattery of coronavirus and I'm trying to work out who the shedder is. So I'm going to check which cats are shedding, which cats aren't, so I can put the, the negatives together and try and find out which is the cat that's actually the chronic shedder. They, they'll be the times. Would you use them? Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think also, I think, you know, getting rid of coronavirus from a household is really, really difficult, isn't it? I've only yes. ever come across one amazing client that managed to do it. But there are there are sometimes some very high chronic shedders that at least thinking about removing, you know, I always think about coronavirus load in a household and just sort of try, you know, because yeah. the more coronavirus there is there, the more it replicates, the more it replicates badly. And, yes. you know, so, but yeah, exactly those two situations. Thank you for listening to Chattering with ISFM. The full version of this roundtable discussion is available for ISFM veterinary members. To access it, please log in to portal.icatcare.org where you'll find not only this, but also access to all of your other ISFM member benefits, including recordings from our ISFM congresses, monthly webinars, the discussion forum, and much more. If you're not an ISFM member, please visit icatcare.org to learn more. Tune in next month for the second part of this series on FIP, And do look out for a free open access webinar brought to you from IDEX that will be going live on the 8th of December with Bill Saxton and he's going to be speaking on feline renal and urinary health, how to optimise sampling and diagnostics. See you again next month.